I have some really good news for you today. That God cares about football. Today is a special football day, is it not? Um, I have a good friend from New York who happens to be a Jewish rabbi. And he, um, he posted something in, in his, on his Facebook page. He has a, they have a kind of lectionary that they use in the Reformed Jewish tradition that's kind of like, you know, readings for each week. And he um, pulled out, he posted a reading from the book of Exodus, which was the reading from the Torah for that week. Um, and he said this, with, the, with, the, with this comment, he said, this week's Torah portion mentions both chiefs and eagles in consecutive paragraphs. You're welcome. Hashtag Super Bowl Torah. <laughs> and now in case you don't believe me, all right, well, I'm going to show you from Exodus 18. This is when Moses, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is speaking to Moses, advising him about how to organize the people. And it says in 18, 21, and 25, you shall also seek out from among all the people, capable individuals who fear God. Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people. Moses appointed the heads over the people, chiefs of thousands. And then only just a few verses later in Exodus 19, it says, And Moses went up to God, the Eternal One, called to him from the mountains, saying, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. <laughs> right there in the Torah portion. Pretty amazing. The next question might be, well, did God tell us which one's going to win? And um, unfortunately, not in this passage, but of course, if you know Isaiah 40, it says, Those who trust in the Lord will mount up what? with eagle's wings. So I let you to give your own uh, conclusions to that, but I don't know if we've got Eagles fans or Chiefs fans in here, but um, I hope you have a great Super Bowl day. Um, a little insight from a Jewish rabbi from New York. There you go. Not what you expected this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you are here with us today. I pray that we would have a, a lovely day today, Lord. And if we watch the game, that we would just have a wonderful time with friends and family, Lord. If we just were able to relax and, and uh, spend some time just resting, Lord, on this rainy, cold day, Lord. We're thankful that you are here with us. Lord, you care about all the things, Lord, that are going on in our lives, Lord. You care about our lives, our, our children, our families, Lord. And you care um, about our heart for you, Lord, that in every way we would begin to be healed and drawn closer to you, Lord. And I just pray today would be a day where we'd hear your voice. Lord, you have a word for each one of us today. And you may have even already spoken it through, through the message, through the worship, through the testimonies. But Lord, we want to open up our ears and our hearts right now to hear from you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are on chapter 19 of John. Okay, um, we have almost finished John. We only have one week next week, and then we're done. Can you believe that? Um, for those of you that are kind of new, we've been doing this since September. We've gone through John, the book of John. We did take a little break over Advent, but it's been great, right? I mean, to take a book of the Bible, like John especially, and just go through it, straight through. And I just have to tell you, just to, this should become a practice in your life, that you take a book of the Bible and you just start reading through it because you get a different perspective when you go through. I know many of us have devotionals and things we use that have a little verse here and a little verse there, and that's all good, but you know what? There's something about taking the book of Ephesians, just reading through it, taking the book of Mark, reading straight through it, Acts. And so I encourage you, now that we're almost done with John, read through John again. Because first of all, I had to skip a lot of parts. If I went verse by verse, we'd have been here till 2024. Um, but, you know, I had to skip a lot of parts, read through the whole thing. But I think now that we've been talking about it and, and learning from it, it's going to come alive to you in a new way. So just encourage you to keep reading through the book, the book of John. 
But today we land on kind of a sobering uh, chapter. Chapter 19 is where we talk about the death of Jesus. And it's interesting that you can grow up around Christianity and know that Jesus died for your sins. You may have, you know, heard a little bit about Judas. You may have heard about Pilate washing his hands. Um, but if you have never read the story all the way through, the trial, the arrest, the trial, the conviction, the, the, the beating, the, cu the crucifixion, if you've never read it through, it is shocking, actually, when you read it. I've actually had people tell me, you know, I've known in general about it, but the first time I read it all the way through, I was angry. How did this happen? It was such a terrible miscarriage of justice, it boggles the mind. Uh, we saw last week that the high priest questioned Jesus, and then this week, and Pilate, and now this week again, Pilate. And, and Pilate keeps saying, I find no basis for a charge against him. He's innocent. Um, the Jewish leaders, of course, thought he should die because he was claiming to be the son of God, but they weren't in charge. This was a Roman province. This was a Roman place, and the Romans were meant to be fair and just, non-sectarian. They were meant to protect the people that lived under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. Jesus was an innocent man who should have been protected, at least given a fair trial. <laughs> uh, and even... Pilate didn't think he was guilty of anything deserving death, and yet this terrible story ensues. And so we're going to pick this up at the end of chapter 18. I'm going to just warn you today, we're reading a lot of scripture today. Because we're going to kind of read into this chapter. So if you want to even turn to it, if it's easier for you on your phone, or you can turn to chapter 19 um, of John. We're going to actually start right at the end of 18 on verse 38. It says that Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time at the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and, sa and again saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him on the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. You see, Pilate three times says, I find no basis for a charge against him. Later on, it says that he actually is trying to set Jesus free. So what we see, what, what Pilate's trying to do here is he's trying to get him enough punished that the Jews will perhaps let up on it, that they will just let him go. And so first, of course, he offers to set him free instead of Barabbas. Why he couldn't just set him free anyway, I don't really quite understand. But anyway, he, he tries to do that. They want Barabbas instead. And then he has him flogged. And of the crown of thorns and the mocking that went on there, possibly thinking this might be a, a way to satisfy the Jewish leaders, to make them feel like, okay, he's been punished enough, maybe garner a little sympathy for him. We should note how briefly this is mentioned. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. This was no minor thing. There were three kinds of floggings that Romans did. Some were more uh, mild than others, and, and then the worst one was the worst one. And um, there's actually a little bit of debate about whether he was flogged once or twice because this could have been an early flogging that was lighter and that later there was uh, another flogging and other, others say that there was just one flogging. But we know that at least one of them, and it may have been this one, was the worst one. They call it the verbatio, inflicted with a whip that had bits of metal and stone at the end of each one of the straps so that it ripped the flesh when it 
when it came down. It was a horrible, torturous kind of punishment, cruel. Many people died from just the whipping. Uh, if they didn't die, they were weak or they passed out. It explains why Jesus was too weak to carry his cross. A normal man could carry his own cross, but he was so weakened by this punishment. And so surely seeing Jesus so beaten and bloodied like that, surely they would have some, some, some mercy on him. It would soften the crowd, and yet instead it backfires, right? And they even more so say, crucify, crucify him. And so let's keep going with the account of this unjust scene. From then on, this is from chapter 12, from then on, or verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Now, I want to stop here for a minute. We're just going to take a little break. Do you see the irony of this moment? Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat. Who is eventually going to be sitting on the judgment seat and judging the living and the dead? See, Pilate is sitting on a judgment seat made by man. But he is, standing before him is the one and only God-man who is going to be seated on the throne in heaven and judging him. Amen. So ironic. It says in 2 Corinthians, for we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But Jesus allows this to happen. No one passes judgment on Jesus, but Jesus allows it to happen because he knows the cup that he's about to drink, that he needs to drink it. He chooses to drink it. And so we're going to see later that Jesus will say, I lay, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. We're going to see that again and again. So I'm going to keep going. So he's on the judgment seat. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. That's it. So briefly in the text, it's done. He's crucified. They wore Pilate down. They used political manipulation and pressure, and he caved into it, and there you have it. It's as if you're, you're taken to trial, and you're innocent, and so it looks like it's all going in your favor, and the judge is all on your side, and then suddenly a big crowd comes in and starts shouting at the judge and pressuring the judge, and so suddenly he just changes his mind and says, oh, no, I guess you're going to jail. That's kind of what this is like. It's just so unjust, it's hard to even imagine. There's no evidence, no witnesses, no fair trial, no justice at all. And I would love to believe that if I were there at this time, that I would have stood up for Jesus. That maybe you and I would have gone to Pilate and said, like, dude, like, this isn't good. Like, we got to have a fair trial. That we would have, you know, stood up for him and, and shouted down the crowd. I, I would love to think that I would have done that, but I got a funny feeling I probably wouldn't have. The stakes are pretty high in this moment. Um, it could have been you or me on the cross next. We made too much of a fuss, right? It was already so unjust. What's another injustice? And so um, there was no one there to stand up for Jesus. Even his disciples who had been with him through three years of seeing him doing miracles and being God and speaking to them, and they knew who he was, and yet even all his disciples fled. Nobody stood for him. He was alone. 
And yet, lest we feel hopeless about that, lest we feel like, oh, poor Jesus, we have to remember that the Son of God, restricted as he was by a human body, never stopped being completely in control. He was in complete control of the whole situation, even in the face of the injustice and the horrors of it. And I I mentioned this last week, but I really feel like it's worth mentioning again. Jesus says it way back in chapter 10, if we were paying attention, back early on in John, where he says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. He is completely in control. And then, this is fascinating, right after he has been flogged and the crown of thorns, there's blood pouring down of his body. He's bruised. He's, he's, he's all beaten up, wounds all over his body. This is what he says to Pilate, John 19, 11. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. I wonder if Pilate, like, laughed in that moment, but like, yeah, well, you don't look like you got too much power now. You don't look so good. But see, Pilate didn't see with kingdom eyes. He didn't see that Jesus had every ability to stop what was happening. But he knew what he was called to do. He knew what, what he was brought to this earth to do, which was to save you and me from our sins. And so at the worst of moments, when there was no, one, no justice, When there was all pain and suffering, Jesus is the master of the situation. He is in control. He's doing kingdom things that we cannot see. And I really just feel this is an important point worth pondering and worth remembering in our own lives. Because it's easy to say and believe that Jesus is in control when you have little problems, right? I mean, when you need a parking space. It's easy to say, oh, Lord, you're in control of the parking lot. Like, open up a space for me. And, whoa, there it goes, you know, oh, praise the Lord. It's easy to believe God for little problems, that he's going to control little problems. But it's a lot harder when the problems get pretty big and pretty painful, isn't it? It's when the big stuff comes along. Can God repair marriages? Can he bring wayward children home? Can God still be in control when we have cancer or when we lose our jobs? Can we trust him? And I think that in those moments, it's when we have to understand that Jesus' ways are beyond our ways. If you would have looked at the situation, if you were an outsider coming in and seeing Jesus beaten up, torn up, about to be crucified, you'd say, you know, he screwed this whole thing up. This is not working. (laughs) This is not a good situation. But yet the whole time he is in control, he is carrying out the plan that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cooked up in heaven long before this was all happening to bring us into relationship with him. That's why he did it. So he knows what he's doing even when everything else looks bleak. And so I just feel like that's a word for someone today, that things may look really bleak. But God is in control. He is doing kingdom work in you and in your situation. And while it may look bleak, he he is in charge of it all. So can we surrender our situation to him? our circumstances to him? Can we give him control? Can we say, God, I trust you in this thing that looks like it's falling apart. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to question you. I'm not going to say, oh, God must not love me if he's letting this happen. No, God, you are in control. And you're going to take care of me and take care of my loved ones. And I trust you. Amen? Can we, can we be that church that trusts Jesus for the big problems? 
know that he's doing kingdom things. So that's all the, the story of Jesus and how he was crucified. What's so interesting about John's account here in John 19, and you know, I hope by now you've, you've gotten the sense that John is this masterful writer uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Man, he is writing this thing in such an incredible way because if you remember the point of the whole gospel, which we'll get to next week in John 20, is that, though, that we may believe that he is the Son of God and in believing have life in his name. Right, that, that's the whole point of this gospel. And so what we see that in chapter 19, in the midst of all this action and Jesus getting beaten and crucified and all of that, that what we see is that everything that's happening has been foretold already. <laughs> it was already planned out before it even happened. That Jesus, that, that this, was, this was known before the beginning of time. And he points it out here. So I'm going to show you something cool. Every now and then I say we're going to do a little Bible geeking. So this is, we're Bible geeking right now. Okay, get ready. I'm going to show you a ton of scriptures. But what I want to show you is how in this account, so many little details of this account were foretold. You couldn't put, the, you couldn't have, you know, you couldn't have made this happen if you tried to make this happen. Okay, so we're just going to go, I'm going to buzz through them quick. If you like what I'm doing, you can just take a picture of it and study it longer later. But um, let's just start. The first thing we see is that Jesus was silent before Pilate. He did speak earlier on in the trial. But then at this point, on verse 8, Jesus gave Pilate no answer. So after doing all the speaking he needed to do, now he was silent before his executioner. And this is to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Somebody say fulfilled. Fulfilled. He was also abused and mocked. Verses 2 and 3 of 19, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. This was to fulfill the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock him. They hurl insult, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Somebody say, fulfilled. Fulfilled. Tortured and crucified, Jesus was in John 19, 1 and 16, Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged, and finally handed him over to be crucified. This was to fulfill the words of the prophet and the psalmist, two different prophecies. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of that Jesus did, pierced, wounded. Psalm 22, 6 and 7. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Someone say fulfilled. Can I hear that? I want to hear fulfilled. Go. Fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Jesus in this moment. And we're going to keep going. Now John makes it a little more clear. He points out the fulfillment. He says it over and over again. Uh, they, they divided his clothing and cast lots for it. In John 19, 23 to 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who gets it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. In Psalm 22, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Someone say, fulfilled. They gave him vinegar for his thirst. These are details you, couldn't, you can't make this stuff up, as they say. 
They gave him vinegar for his thirst. John 19, 28 to 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it. Happened to be there, by the way. Wine vinegar happened to be there. I love that. Uh, So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. This was to fulfill the words of the psalmist, Psalm 69, 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Someone say fulfilled. Filled. Not one of his bones will be broken and he'll be pierced by the sword. John 19 starting at the end of 31, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It proved that he was dead, by the way, the way medically that blood and water pouring out. He was dead. And it's interesting that John adds a parenthetical. In case in all of this you're doubting any of this, he says in 1935, it's not on the screen, but he says the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I saw this. I know this is true. I know it's crazy. I know it's hard to believe. There just happened to be vinegar. They happened to not break his legs. But I'm telling you this is true. That's what John's saying here. And so it goes on to say in John 19, 36 to 37, these things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. And what's fascinating about this, if you look into the Old Testament scriptures that he's referring to here, because he's quoting from the Old Testament, from their Hebrew Bible, it's all about the Passover lamb. <laughs> Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12, both of those, God is telling Moses and Aaron, when they're eating the Passover lamb, don't break any of the bones. Jesus is the lamb of God. When that Passover lamb was, was, was spilled, his blood was spilled and put over the doorpost to save the, the, the Israelites from the Egyptians, this was a precursor, this was a, a foreshadowing of Jesus' blood which would cover us. He's the Lamb of God. In Psalm 34, 20, God says of the righteous that God protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. Fulfilled. 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 Last one. One more. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. We enter the burial of Jesus here, and John mentions Joseph of Arimathea, who the other Gospels describe as a prominent member of the Jewish council. He would have been wealthy, he would have been well-respected, but he also was a secret follower of Jesus. He was kept it from the other leaders, um, but he was a secret follower. And so it says in verse 38, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. This was to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He died with wicked criminals next to him, but with the rich in his death. You cannot make this stuff up, people. You cannot make this up. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. One more time, can we all say fulfilled? (laughs) Fulfilled. 
Jesus fulfilled every single thing through this, this moment of him being arrested and tried and beaten and crucified and dying. What's incredible about this is that this is all even before the resurrection. Resurrection's coming, by the way, next week. you got to come back. Uh, spoiler alert, he does rise up again. Um, but, you know, even without the resurrection, there is enough here to say this was the Messiah. This was who was promised of old by the Lord, who, who was prophesied through prophets and psalmists through the ages. Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah, it's him. It's all foretold and it came to pass. And it's interesting that there's seven fulfillments of prophecy here. If we remember the significance of seven in the book of John, the first half of John is, is uh, the, the book of signs, and there were seven signs that show that Jesus is the Son of God. There's seven I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the, I'm the light of the world. All of those statements, there's seven of those. There's also apparently, I haven't looked this one up, I read this, that the seven, there's seven women that he talked to. Uh, there were seven questions, actually, that Pilate asked him. A lot of sevens in John. What does seven mean? Seven in, in the scripture is, is a, a sign of completion, of fulfillment. Fulfillment. There's a prophetic and poetic beauty to the book of John. All pointing to the perfection and the completeness of what Jesus did for us and why he, and why he came and why so that we would believe he's the son of God and in believing have life in his name. Amen? Amen. That's what he wants for each one of us. He wants us to have life in his name. And so the prophetic continues with this one last move of Pilate's. As he's on the cross, Pilate does a little last thing. And verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, right here, you might think, Oh, maybe Pilate gets it. Like, maybe he really does think he's the son of God. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> because he would never have let him get crucified if he really thought he was the son of God. Now, he did think he was innocent, but, you know, he'd rather that innocent guy die rather than him, right? So, you know, he was all right with seeing that happen. But I think more likely what he, that Pilate put up the sign as a way to kind of tweak the, the Jewish leaders that were there. Um, they had put him into this whole distasteful situation, and he didn't like it. And they pressured him, and they manipulated him, and he didn't like it. And so this was an opportunity to say, oh, here's your king, this pathetic guy with dripping with blood and, and wounds all over him, and he's dying slowly of crucifixion. There's your king. So it's a way of kind of mocking the Jewish people uh, in that moment. But it's interesting that it would not be the first time that God has used someone who was unbelieving, unwilling, unsavory, um, unsuspecting to accomplish his ends in history because that statement on that, on that cross was prophetic. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all. And it was a prophetic statement. Think of, think of how God used Pharaoh. His heart was, hard, heart was hardened, and yet he used him to deliver his people. In the same way, God is using Pilate to declare to the world, this man is the king. This man is the king. We're almost at the end of the book of glory. 
And if you remember, the whole idea of the book of glory, the second half of John, is that Jesus is going to be glorified. This is, this is actually the first moment of his glorification, that he's being declared, even while on the cross, even while dying, he's the king. He is the king. He's king over all. It's a prophetic truth. I love the way D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commentators on John, puts it. <clears throat> he says, Pilate's malice serves God's ends. The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. The cross is the means of his exaltation and the very manner of his glorification. Even the trilingual notice may serve as a symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. Thus, the two men most actively and immediately responsible for Jesus' death, Caiaphas earlier on in chapter 11, and Pilate here, are unwittingly furthering God's redemptive purposes, unwittingly serving as prophets of the king they execute. The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, God. You are a king. Even in the midst of all of this, even before we even look to the resurrection, which we do with, with great anticipation, we, we acknowledge you are king. You are king. And so this... This chapter ends with a somewhat somber but also expectant note. Um, we know that Jesus' death is our salvation. Only because Jesus was king, that he was divine, that his blood was, that he was perfection. So he could be the perfect sacrificial lamb to be sacrificed for our sins, to cleanse us by his blood. Only perfect blood could do that. Only God blood could do that, could deliver you and me from our sins. And wash us clean. And I want to leave you with one last scripture that's not from John, it's from 1 Peter. And it says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just take a moment. To appreciate that fact. That he died to deliver you, to wash us clean. And I, I have sensed two things today as I've been praying through how we end this message and how we respond to God today. And I first think that we need to thank him for the cross. We forget sometimes to thank him for the cross. We get all excited about the resurrection, and the resurrection's amazing, and it doesn't all make sense until you get to the resurrection, but can we thank him? He didn't have to do what he did. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit could have been up in heaven and said, you know what, these humans are way more trouble than they're worth. <laughs> they get in a lot of trouble. They're always messing things up. They're always turning away. And they didn't. They said, no, I know, they're, I know they can be a problem, and I know they're, they're, they're frustrating, but I love them. God said, I love them, and I want, I want to know them, and I want them to know me, whatever the cost. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or how short. That should just blow your mind. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for what you went through for us. And I also sense today that some of us may need to be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. There may be some of you today who think, I'm too messed up, I'm too dirty, I'm too 
just wrong. I'm not as holy as all these people. I could never be worthy of it. He says, you don't have to be worthy. That's why he was worthy. That's why he is the worthy, the spotless lamb on the, on the cross, so that you didn't have to be worthy. So all we need to do is come to him with all of that mess, all of that junk. God has second chances, right? We just, just bring it to him, and he washes us clean by his blood. So let's just take a moment and thank him for the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for doing what you did for us, Lord. For suffering like that, Lord. For giving us a second chance and a third chance and a hundredth chance. And I also pray today, Lord, cleanse me. Pray with me if you have never asked Jesus to come into your life. Just pray, Lord, I just recognize I need your cleansing. I'm a sinful man and a sinful woman. Forgive me, Lord. Wash me clean. Give me a new life in you.